Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Annie Seymour. I grew up in the Mormon church, and Mormons don't believe in having any fun. <laughs> that and more, but first, we've been so blown away by some recent emails from you guys, from Risk listeners, talking about how they were less accepting of people who are different before they started listening to the podcast. People who feel like the podcast helped them become more open-minded and compassionate. Well, please keep those emails coming. We absolutely, I mean, it helps keep us going. It's That's moral support <laughs> for us to be hearing those sort of testimonials. So don't be shy. Email me at kevin at risk-show.com because I want to hear from you about it. Once again, that's kevin at risk-show.com. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Bob Dylan behind me now. And that jazzy cover of the opening theme was by Nervous Neil Smith. And you can do a cover of the Risk theme, too. You can just go to risk-show.com slash music to find out how. Now, we're calling this week's episode Alive two stories about addiction and recovery. Well, there are laughs and tears and gasps, some amazing, you know, hard to believe moments throughout this episode. Some of the audio interstitials explore the raucous messiness of drugs and alcohol. We've certainly featured surreal and outrageous stories about people who had too much for better or for worse. But these stories today are filled with self-discovery, self-acceptance, self-love. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Adam Vibe Gunton. It's mind-blowing what he has done with his recovery. And you can find his whole story in his book, From Chains to Saved. But before that, Annie Seymour was such a joy to meet when Risk was in Seattle recently, a few months back. We talked to Annie since she shared her story that night, and she said that doing Risk has brought another layer of healing in her journey of learning. And I quote, she said, learning to be human without the prescribed expectations that were assigned to me by others. Whew. <laughs> I love that. 
Such an inspiration, and here she is now. This is Annie Seymour with a story we call It's Not an Act. Take a deep breath. standing on stage and I'm wearing a black evening dress that's to my knees. My cleavage is down to here and I'm holding a glass of a shot of bourbon and I'm looking out in the audience and I'm seeing the silhouettes of their shoulders and and faces and their their heads in the back and I'm standing there very confidently feeling pretty sexy. Three months earlier, I was invited to participate in this impromptu audition, and I got a part in a play. And during our first script read, I discovered that this character drank bourbon. And I, at that point in my life, had never tasted bourbon. Didn't even know anything about it, actually. And I was 46 years old, and I had never had a drop of alcohol at that point in my life. And the reason why I had never had alcohol at that point in my life was because, one, my father was an alcoholic, and I did not want to be like him in any way, shape, or form. And then, two, I grew up in the Mormon church, and Mormons don't believe in having any fun. (laughs) Especially when it comes to mind-altering substances and desires of the flesh. Growing up in this environment, I came away with this belief that the only way I could be of loved or of value was to be perfect. So in my perfectionistic brain, I decided to approach this character, bourbon-drinking person on stage. I was going to just research the shit out of bourbon. So I got online, and I discovered the science behind it, and the name, and the history, and all of these fascinating things that I had heard and seen on television or movies, things like a neat or on the rocks, or mm, there was what I called a juice glass, but found out it's called a snifter. And as I'm doing this research, I'm also coming across these tutorials and these videos. They just profess that you, if you do what these tutorials tell you to do, you will become a professional bourbon drinker. I believed them, but it turned out to be a big, fat, hairy lie. I was at um, a rehearsal one night, and we were going through notes, and my director asked me this question. Hey, Annie, have you ever had alcohol? And I shook my head in the negative, and I went, "Mm, no. Um, Hold up. I've had NyQuil. Does that count? (laughs) And she laughed hysterically, pulled herself together, and came back and said, "Mm, no, that doesn't count at all. Your homework over spring break is to try bourbon. And I blew it off with a chortle, just walked out of there, no intention, had no idea what at all she was talking about. But the seed was planted. (laughs) Questions like, how do you buy sinful nectar? (laughs) What does it really feel like? So I found myself in a parking lot at a grocery store, very, very apprehensive, and looking around over my shoulder, and I'm standing by my car, which is safe, and my heart is just 
pounding in my chest and I can see it. And this concrete ball is forming in my throat and just sweat is dripping off the back of my neck. And I'm breathing like a, a claustrophobic patient in an MRI tube. And I, I just know that the CIA and the FBI and the, the horrible of horriblest that the Mormon you can't buy alcohol police are gonna show up. This vortex is going to create it in the sky, and I'm going to be sucked down to the center of the core of the earth, and I'm going to have to shake hands with Satan. (sighs) As it turns out, nobody gives a shit if you buy alcohol. I manage to sneak this home away from my children, and I, I bring it into my little apartment, and I... I put it in my temple garment bag because I knew, I knew nobody was going to be looking in there. So this little pint of bourbon started to whisper to me, Hey, Annie, come on over here. You know you want to know what it's like, how I make you feel, don't you? Come on, you can do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I didn't listen to these whispers, and then it started to scream at me. Annie, take me out! Drink me! So I took it out, put it on the counter, and in this glass I now know is a snifter, and I set it on the counter, and I'm staring at it, and I, I put it up to my nose, and I smell it. Oh, and it is disgusting, (laughs) revolting. It's burning in my nose, and I'm like, this tastes like it smells? Who in the hell would put this in their mouth on purpose? So I know that at some point, this liquid needs to get in my belly so that I can feel it. So I take the glass again, I put it up to my mouth, and the glass hits my teeth, clink, 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 clink. And I I take a sip, and oh my God, I was, my suspicions were correct. What filthy disgustingness, it was putrescent. So I put it in in my mouth, and I know that I've got to throw this thing back in the back of my throat like these videos had taught me. So I do it. I throw it in the back of my mouth, and my taste buds are pissed off. What the hell are you doing? And I I get it in the back of my throat and it comes into the top of my esophagus and I'm so excited it's in my esophagus because my esophagus doesn't have taste buds and it's going down, down, down and and, and just oozing, oozing, oozing into my belly and it's coating it like Pepto-Bismol. And I wait. And I wait. And I wait. And nothing's happening. So I deduce that I'm going to need more. So I repeat the process. Glass, pour in what I think is a shot, down that thing to the back of my throat, comes into my esophagus, oozing, 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 gets into my belly. And then in a very short amount of time, because I knew enough that if I starved myself, which I did that day, that the effect would be fast. So I started to feel this ball growing in my belly. It was warm. And it grew and grew and grew. And as it was going up my chest, it felt like this texture inside of my veins. And it's going up into my shoulder and it's pulling down into my elbow and I can feel it just going through my body, coming to the palm of my hand and it's getting to the ends of my fingers and it feels like glitter. (laughs) 
and I, I take my thumb and I touch my fingertips. Poof, 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 poof. And then all of a sudden, the world just got calm. And I looked in the mirror and I saw my reflection and my eyes caught my eyes and that soul just met for a second and this thought went through my head. Oh, shit. (laughs) And I chased that high. I chased it hard and I chased it fast. And within months, I was drinking every day. Within months, I was getting drunk. Within months, I was blacking out. And I hid this from my children for two years. No idea that that was happening every night when I would come home in my bathroom. The draw and the obsession was that for two hours a day, I could just not feel anything. I didn't have to look at myself. I didn't have to feel the guilt and the shame of being this fallen angel in the Mormon church because I had the courage to leave an ex-husband, leave a 25-year toxic marriage, and I had even more courage to leave a very prescribed religion. For two hours a day, I did not have to be perfect. Two and a half years after my very first drink, I wake up one morning and I'm horribly sick. I end up calling into work. It's the first time I've ever missed work because of alcohol, and it scared me. I walked into the kitchen, and I found this very tall, because I bought in bulk, I was poor, and it was a Walmart, I don't even know the name, but there was a kangaroo on it, and picked up the bottle, and I could see that there was this line of wine at the bottom of this bottle. And for the life of me, I could not remember anything past the first drink I had the night before. And this overwhelming blanket of self-loathing and hatred just came over me. I took the bottle, I put it on the counter, and that sound that glass makes when it hits stone. I turned to my 27-year-old son and I said, very defeatedly, I am an alcoholic. And he responded with... Yes, you are. I walked into my bathroom, and there again was that face that I connected with and that core and soul, and I met her eyes. Oh, God, I have become my father. I asked for help at that point, and I got sober. And nine months into my sobriety, I'm hanging out at work. There's a a VIP in town, we're treating him real special, and this culture at work was was very involved with alcohol and socializing. And I was very confident that at that point in time, I had this thing licked. And within a millisecond, a gin and a tonic burn down my throat within seconds, my feet had hit that road to hell again very fast. Six months later... I'm visiting my son out of town. He's a type 1 diabetic. I opened up his refrigerator door, and I went to the bottom of the shelf where he stores his insulin, and he had this minuscule amount. He was having a difficult time getting his prescriptions refilled from his insurance. And I took a vial out of there, a full one, 
and I stole it. I stole this, this liquid that keeps my son alive. I went into his closet and I stole his bag of syringes. And I had planned my death to a T. Again, I just begging and pleading for help and I got sober again. This time, I got to work. I started asking those questions and I got honest with myself. And along that line, I got permission. And I don't remember if it was a person or a moment or a conversation, but I had this permission that I could actually start looking at me and decide who I am. Instead of what my church told me or what my ex-husband, or what the culture, and that I could find out who this was. Eight months after getting sober, my sweetie and I, we had just started dating, and we took a weekend trip out to Nia Bay and met the amazing Macaw people out there. And while I was staying in this little fisherman's hut on the beach, and the first morning that we were there, I woke up, and he was still asleep, and I went out to the beach, and I took my camping chair, and I'm sitting in it with my keen boots and my jeans, and I'm wearing his white and blue flannel shirt and my WSU baseball hat. I'm sitting on this chair, And I'm writing in my journal, and I have this song of Lauren Daigle called Love Like This playing. And I actually did a video journal, and so I'm videoing myself, and and these words started to come through my fingers and through the pen and on this paper, this handcrafted paper. I remember that texture of that pen on that paper. And the words were like, I'm nice. I'm compassionate. I have this big wonderful heart and I want to share with people and I have this capacity this enormous capacity to love and I have this aptitude for art and I'm funny and I'm not only funny I'm fun and I start laughing and giggling and 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 singing and I jump out of my chair and I'm running down the beach and I'm kicking the sand with my keen boots I'm throwing seashells into the ocean I'm looking across the bay the fog hasn't cleared up yet I'm still I'm just giddy I'm getting this three-year-old little self and I'm happy and I'm free and I'm feeling this this joy and at one moment I race to the edge of the water and I stand in my cheerleader stance and I'm looking it's just me in Canada it's right across the bay and I can see it and I feel this energy just pulsating it's whirling around the side of my body and this is intense love and it just comes to the front of my face and I I'm looking at it and we're having this conversation and, and I have this audible discovery I'm perfectly imperfect. And the seed of self-acceptance was planted, and I found this authentic me, and and I, I like her. I like her a lot. Thank you for letting me share my story. And now it's time for some... Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries... 
If you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance. There's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Because so many Americans think getting drunk is fun, we thought you might like to join us in the national drinking game. Just answer yes or no to the following ten questions. Do you talk a lot about drinking? Only when I'm awake. <laughs> Do you drink more than you used to? I try to. Do you gulp your drinks? Only out of a glass. Do you often take a drink to feel better? Do you drink alone? Only if I'm stuck. Do you ever forget what you did while you were drinking? Do you keep a bottle hidden somewhere for quick pick-me-ups? How does he know? Do you sometimes start drinking without really thinking about it? Sometimes. Do you need a drink to have fun? I do now. Do you ever take a drink in the morning to relieve a hangover? Uh-huh. Congratulations. If you had four or more yes answers, then you may be one of over nine million Americans with a drinking problem. It was September 28th, 2008. And I'd been out drinking and partying like most nights of my freshman year of college when I woke up to my phone ringing and vibrating down by my leg. I swam through the soft sheets to find my hard phone with the bright screen that read 4.47 a.m. and my best friend Chucker was calling me. And I remember having the conscious choice that I could either answer the phone like I always do with, hey, what's up, Chuck? Or I could answer the way I was feeling with, uh, hello? And in my still drunken state, I chose the latter to which a soft voice replied, hey, what's up? Why are you calling me this late? I was just calling to say hi. Don't call me this late again. And I hung up on him, and he shot himself. Three days after that event, I found Oxycontin for the first time. And for the next 10 years, I was unable to share that phone call with anyone as I bottled it down deeper and deeper and deeper with drugs and alcohol. Soon after finding Oxycontin, I was able to procure a prescription for 250 milligrams per day at 20 years old. And that went for a little while. And as the story goes that we all know, when Oxycontin gets too expensive, you have to move over to heroin. I started with smoking it, snorting it a little bit, and then I moved into IV heroin use. And 
One thing that was great about my drug use days <laughs> was that I always was able to uh, do door-to-door -door sales. So I was able to make a six-figure income with a needle in my arm. And I got really good at door-to-door -door sales. I was actually able to go into a Spanish-speaking neighborhood where I had no idea how to speak Spanish and go to a door and figure Spanish out. Like, hola, mi nombre es Adam, servicio al cliente por Satali Telatino. ¿Tienes Dish Network? Oh, ¿cuántos años por Dish? <laughs> they were always very, very friendly and helping of uh, my Spanish. And the corporations that I worked for at the time, it was great because I was actually really good, so they would pay for my housing, they would pay for my bills, I would be able to travel around and live in these houses or apartments or whatever, and I would get a fat paycheck every week to support my habit. And this went on for years until uh, 2016. I was sitting in a corporate housing apartment in my home state of Colorado, and I was sitting at my desk in my bedroom. I had this drawer that had all my shit in it, the dope and the needles and everything, and I had loaded up a shot. I was sitting at my desk, and I was looking down at this loaded syringe, and I didn't want to do it. But I had to. I began to cry as I was staring at this thing. And I remember the way that it looked magnified through my tears. This blurry image of something that was taking everything from me, but I had to use it. And I set it down on the desk and I put my hands up to my face and I started to cry. And I heard a voice from behind me say, pray. And I looked behind me and there was no one there and I put my face back in my hands and I started crying harder and harder and harder. And then I heard the voice repeat itself. It said, pray. And I got up from that chair and I limped over to my bed, not from physical pain, but from emotional pain for all the things that I'd been through. And I dropped down to my knees and I put my hands up and all I could get out was God. And in that moment, I felt arms wrap up from behind me and hug me. And these weren't arms coming from somebody that was standing over me saying, it's okay, buddy, it's gonna be okay. These were arms of somebody that had gotten down on the ground with me at my lowest point and said, I love you in this moment at your lowest. My love for you has never changed from yesterday, today, and forever. And I stood up, I walked over to my desk, and I shot up. The next day, I was thinking, and I, I didn't think that I was going to make it through this addiction. I did not believe that I was going to survive. And I made the decision that I'm going to quit this job that's enabling me to be able to do this. And I'm going to have a meeting with my family and tell them I have to go. I'm going to go up to Billings, Montana, and do everything I can to get clean and sober. So I go up to Billings, Montana. I move into a homeless shelter. And for the next few months, I try everything to get clean and sober. I was going to two 12-step fellowship meetings every single day. I was going to church Saturdays and Sundays. I was going to a Bible study every Tuesday. I even went to an MMA gym thinking they might be able to beat clean into me. <laughs> but nothing was working. And they talk about a rock bottom for an addict is what they need to hit. And I want to tell you that rock bottom for an addict doesn't exist. Because I thought it was rock bottom when I was at that corporate housing apartment having to do something that I didn't want to do. And then I thought it was rock bottom when I was at that homeless shelter looking around at who I had become.
and then I got 86 and kicked out of that homeless shelter. And it came to a point after months of this, I was 148 pounds, I'm 212 right now, and I was sitting in this car that this girl let me borrow that wasn't stolen, but I did have to start it with a screwdriver. <laughs> but I'm sitting in this car before Bible study, and I sat back in that seat, and I had an epiphany that I didn't want to live anymore. I'm not going to do this anymore. And I said audibly to God, I'm done. I'm not going to these meetings. I'm not going to Bible study. I'm not going to church. I'm not doing this anymore. Please just let me die. And he whispered to me, and it's not audible, but it's this soft voice that you intuitively know in your heart. And he said, it's time, go. And when he said that, my first feeling was anger because what's different about this time? What's different than all the other times when I've taken the dope and I've put it in a toilet the night before and then woke up in the morning and went to the pawn shop to pawn something else of my life away for this dope? What's different about this time, God? So I start hitting the roof of the car and I'm hitting the steering wheel and I'm crying and I'm screaming. What's different about this time? Please just let me die. Please just let me die. And he lets me go on. And then he just repeats himself. He said, it's time, go. And in that moment, when he repeated himself, I didn't get this overwhelming sense of Holy Spirit power, it's done. But I got this sense of willingness that I'd never had before. This willingness to do whatever you say, whatever you say. And at the time, I didn't know what it's time go means. I didn't know what go means. But I go to the Bible study. I bust the doors open. I'm 12 minutes late. They're in the middle of prayer, and I drop down on my knees, and I say, guys, please help me. I can't stop. I used again. Please help me. Please help me. And you have to imagine, I've been doing this for months at these meetings, at this Bible study, at church. I'm reaching out to help for everybody. I don't know if God's ever going to actually save me. And my best friend, Brendan, who's the leader of the Bible study, comes over. He's like, bro, it's, it's okay, bro. It's okay. Like, let's just get through Bible study. And we get through Bible study, and then at the end, one of the elders comes up to me, and he's like, hey, I just got a word. I need to pray for you. And everybody had left except for him, George, who was another elder, and Brendan. And he sits me down on this ottoman in the middle of this room, and for the first time in my life, he puts his hand on my shoulder, looks me in the eyes, and starts casting things out of me. In the name of Jesus, spirit of addiction, leave. In the name of Jesus, spirit of anxiety, leave. And as he's saying these things, I'm feeling weight coming off of my chest. I'm feeling something happening that I've never experienced before. As if something actually was in control of me. So I make it five days after this experience, which if anybody knows anything about addiction, five days is a miracle. And Brendan this whole time is amazing. My best friend, he's been like picking me up from the homeless shelter and taking me to lunch, taking me to breakfast, church, whatever. And he takes me to IHOP, International House of Pancakes, and we're sitting there, and I'm ecstatic because I have five days. I'm like, holy cow, I made it. And we're talking and everything, and then I get this text message on my phone. At the time, I just have this little flip phone, and I open it up, and it's from my dope dealer. He's like, hey, bro, I just got some new stuff. It's fire. I'll give you a free 20 to try out. And right when I read that text, I feel something go in through the top of my head, all the way through my body, my toes were tingling, my fingers were tingling. I lost my peripheral vision and all I could see was the phone. And then my thumbs just started texting back. 
And it was in like King James. It was like, ye shall not text me again. Thou hast texted me for the last time. <laughs> it was going crazy. And then at the end of the text, it says, and fear the pain you cause your son because your son has been blessed with the Holy Spirit. And then whew, I feel this thing go from my toes all the way up out of my head. I was like, what the heck? And as I was writing it, I couldn't even read it. So I'm like reading, like, what the heck did I just say? And I show it to Brandon. I was like, dude, that wasn't me. That wasn't me. And you have to imagine someone five days clean telling you, that wasn't me, dude. He's like, okay. And I, I push send. I close the phone. And I'm putting it in my pocket. And I'm like, dude, I don't know what that was. I don't know who that was. And I look back up. And Jesus is sitting across from me. And the entire restaurant had completely disappeared. All I could see was his face. There was a glow coming from behind him. And like was said earlier, uh, this wasn't the white European Jesus that sold to everybody. It's, it's almost impossible to explain the brilliance of Jesus sitting in front of you. His smile was just so warming that it just blew my mind. And the only thing I can compare to that moment was when I used to shoot up heroin when I would shoot up, every problem in my life would disappear with one rush of warmth through my body. But in that moment, everything negative disappeared and I was flooded with everything possible you can imagine positive. I had this overwhelming sense of peace immediately, this overwhelming sense of, of purpose immediately, this overwhelming sense of okayness that I had never had in my life. And mind you, this is all in a split second because as soon as I see him, I was so amazed that my face went to the table and my hand up and I said, thank you God, thank you God, thank you God. And I came back up and he was gone. Now, I know what you're thinking. <laughs> Were you high on something? I had five days. And whether you believe it or not, there's records of things like this happening in history and this experience is what changed my life. And I haven't used drugs or alcohol since, and that was just over four and a half years ago. Thank you.
Well, that is almost all of this week's episode, folks. This is Sia behind me now, and we just heard from Adam Vibe Gunton, his book, From Chains to Saved, One Man's Journey Through the Spiritual Realm of Addiction, and the amazing work that Adam does to help others in their journeys is at recoveredonpurpose.com. Now, Adam and I talked all about all of that in a check-in that's on patreon.com slash risk. And I was amazed at how much more there is to his story. In that courtroom, I had to stare into my own eyes without any soul in them. I saw my own dead body on a television screen in front of my face. And the intense thing about that was that that still that still wasn't enough to get me clean. Again, you can find that and so much more bonus content, bonus stories, conversations, journal entries by me, songs, and more by becoming a member and helping keep Risk running over at patreon.com slash risk. And if you want to make a one-time donation, because we really need it, that's at paypal.me slash risk show. Before Adam's story, we heard an interstitial by Taj Easton. And before that one, we heard another by Nervous Neil Smith, who also did that cover of the Risk theme song that started the show. And you can find him at NervousNeil.com. Folks, Risk is live in Los Angeles on August 16th at 7 p.m. And then on September 20th, same time, at the Hotel Cafe. And tickets are at Risk-Show.com slash tour. Folks, I, Kevin Allison, do one-on-one coaching with people. I've coached teachers, lawyers, actors, memoir writers, painters. I've coached people who were working on podcasts, comedy sketches, wedding toasts, eulogies, people who are working on personal essays to get into college or get an article in the paper or even to get out of prison, you know, parole essays. I've done life coaching with people who were in a transitional period in their experiences with sexuality, gender, psychology of kink. I've done life coaching with people about their creative journeys or how to share a difficult true story with a family member. I love doing this one-on-one coaching so very much because I love getting to know you, the Risk listeners. So look me up. I am at KevinAllison.com. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.